just a few minutes, we'll be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 34 this week of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there, uh, whether it's in the Bible app or in the Bible or whatever it might be, it's also on our website. If, if you happen to be tuning in from our website, um, those notes are all in there uh, for, for you to be able to use as well as the passage. I wonder if you are willing to go with me on a journey to a typical church on a typical Sunday morning. We'll look at a few church members, witness their lives on the outside, and we'll witness their lives on the inside as well as the Lord sees them. This is a made-up story, so I'm not talking about anyone, and it's just kind of general as I was laying this out. And uh, so if your name is the same as one of, one of these people I made up, then I apologize. Obviously, I'm not talking about you. Here comes Janet Jones. See, Janet, she's always smiling. She seems so happy, especially when she sees her friends enter the church building. But if you look really close, you can see that frosty glance that Janet gives to Linda Smith. You see, Janet and Linda, they're not talking to one another because Janet and Linda had a falling out months ago. To think that Linda calls herself a Christian, Janet thinks to herself as she walks down the aisle towards her seat. When Linda notices Janet smiling at everyone, she thinks to herself, what a hypocrite and a phony. She doesn't even care about them. And over there's old Bob Thornton. Bob, he's a deacon. He's active in his men's Bible study. He teaches a Sunday school class for children. Every time the church doors are open, Bob is there. He's a real servant. If you need something done around the church, you can call Bob. The time that the church was putting up the new fellowship hall, Bob was there every single Saturday and most evenings. In fact, the pastor calls Bob Old Faithful. You see, Bob is the kind of church member that every single pastor is looking for. Or is he really? You see, if you could see beneath all of the activities of Bob's life and, and, and see past all of the craziness, you would see a man that is trying as hard as he can to work off a load of guilt that he's been carrying around his entire life. There are things in his past that no one in the church knows about. There are things in his past that not even Bob's wife knows about. The terrible things that he did when he was serving in the army. If he could just do enough in a service to the Lord, then he could forget all about those things and tip the scale in his favor. And he can forgive himself besides he really doesn't have that great of a relationship with his wife anyway. It's just simpler if he keeps himself busy with church work. We don't want to forget about Greg. You see, Greg, he's a, he's a single young man. He's fighting a losing battle with pornography. He's not alone. He's just one of many single and married men who are defeated by the plague. And as I said, none of these people are real. They're all just made up. Surely there are not people that are really like this 
in the church, are there? If you think not, think again. Because there were people like this in the church at Corinth. Paul says that there were factions in the church that were contending for predominance. Some of these people are involved in sexual immorality. Some of them were drunkards. And while the church in Corinth should have had some sort of influence on the pagan culture that surrounded the church, the reality was the culture had infiltrated and influenced the church. The early church, you see, didn't have buildings. And Sunday was not a day that they took off. And what they would do is they would come together on Sunday nights in homes of the wealthier church members to celebrate communion. Preceding the worship time, they would have kind of like a, a potluck supper. We all love those potluck suppers, right? That's what they had. It was, it was the agape or the love feast, according to Jude, chapter 12, or Jude 12. However, Corinth had a problem because the wealthy would get there first with all of their good food, their sumptuous food, you know, the kind of stuff that you really like to eat. And so the wealthy people would get there with all this good food, and they, what would they do? They would gorge themselves on the good food. And then when the slaves and the other poor people would arrive, there was no food left for them to be able to eat. And what was even worse, a few of the wealthy members would fill their wine glass, not once, not twice, probably not even three times, but very frequently to the point that they would be drunk. And as a result, they would completely miss the meaning of communion. Paul says that some of the members were suffering severe discipline from the Lord because of their irreverence towards God. And so that's the background of this text that we are about to read. And so with that in mind, I would ask that if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Looking at verses 17 through 34, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, where we read, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but it's for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and, and eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other things. I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, take this word this morning. Oh Lord, would you penetrate our hearts this morning? I don't have the right words to say. I don't know people's hearts. Those are listening online, those that may hear this message days from now, weeks from now, maybe even years from now. I don't know their heart. I don't know the hearts of the people that are in this room this morning. But God, you do. Oh, that you would take your word. That you would penetrate our hearts and lives this morning. Where sin needs to be confessed, we would confess sin. Where grace needs to be shown, that we would see grace. Where mercy needs to be abundant, that mercy would flow. But speak to us this morning, for your saints are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this sermon in a sentence is this. Communion is to be practiced often and is a commitment to the Lord to one another, and yes, even to ourselves. Now, communion along with baptism is one of the two ordinances of the church, or some call them uh, sacraments of the church, that Jesus commanded the church to observe. It is probably also called the breaking of bread. We get the word communion from the Greek in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, where, where we have this Greek word koinonia, and it's used, which means a fellowship or communion. It's also called the table of the Lord in the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word for Thanksgiving. The original Lord's Supper was a Passover meal. This is where Jesus adapted and applied the meaning of the Jewish Passover feast to himself. The, this imagery was just like um, uh, Israel was being delivered from uh, the dead of their firstborn firstborn child and from the slavery to Pharaoh through the blood of the Passover lamb. And so you are spared from the judgment of God and the slavery to sin by the death of the lamb of God. Jesus is giving this picture. I am the Passover lamb. I believe that Paul lays out for us in this passage of scripture four ways in this text that we could or should come to communion that I believe will be beneficial for us to consider. The first thing I want us to see when we're thinking about communion is this. Have communion often. Have 
communion often. We see this in verses 25 and 26. The text just gives it to us that we should have it often. We, see, we read this, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if the breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 refers to communion, then in the beginning, the early church seems to have celebrated communion every single day. Then later on in Acts chapter 20, it became a weekly occurrence that took place on the first day of the week, which would have been Saturday night for us. There are actually many churches that observe communion every single Sunday. There are some that do it every month. There are some that do it every quarter. There's actually no command that tells us how frequently we are to observe communion. It's up to us to decide what the word often means. And to be perfectly honest, I would like to see us observe communion more frequently. And sometimes I wonder if, if we just made it into such a ritual that it makes it so difficult to observe communion more regularly. I was going to find a way to observe communion this week, and, and as I was praying through it, I, I decided not to do that. But to be fair, when I first became the pastor here, I didn't know what I was doing. And some of you might think, well, I still don't know that you know what you're doing. And you'd probably be right. But, uh, uh, but I completely forgot about communion. Just forgot about it. Just we're having church, we're doing stuff. You know, a tornado hit our town six months after I got here, but I didn't help. But anyway, I just completely forgot about communion until someone brought it to my attention. Hey, uh, Pastor, are we uh, ever going to have communion? And then I was like, oh, what am I doing? Well, I've heard people complain about communion before, and often this is the complaint. It becomes an empty ritual. The meaning gets lost. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I've, I've heard that. And isn't that really the danger in something that you do often, right? That it, the meaning gets lost. The danger is it just becomes something that we just do. Well, we're going to do this. Something we kind of check off our list. Kind of like reading your Bible every single day. When you read your Bible every day, you can either be genuinely seeking the Lord through His Word... And we can say, Lord, apply your word to my heart. Or we can just do it to check it off our, our list. Like, read my Bible today. Kind of like prayer, right? We can take the church prayer list or whatever list we have. We can run through that prayer list and pray for everyone's problems. And, and it can just be an empty ritual. Where we just constantly pray for problems and we never really connect with the Lord. Kind of like singing in worship time, right? We can think about the words that are, that are coming out of our mouth as we worship God in spirit and in truth. Or it can be just a mindless thing that we do. Well, it's time to sing songs again. It's time to sing our one song and then have our prayer and then sing our three songs. And then have pastor come up and preach. It's just what we do until somebody throws a wrench in it and we stand on the second song, right? You know, it's just like, it's what we do. It can just become a ritual. Kind of like giving, right? We can either pray and seek the Lord. Say, God, what should I give? 
How much should I give? What are you telling me to give? Or we can just check it off our list. Gave my whatever percent you're giving. Gave my percentage again. Just did it. Not even thinking about what we give. You know, nearly every morning when I leave the house, I kiss my wife. I tell her I love her. And I pray with her every morning before I walk out the door. I try to make it meaningful and memorable, dealing with issues that perhaps we're going through. But it could be just a ritual. It's just what I do. So what I'm saying is that we should have communion often, not just a ritual, but we should have it often and we should, which leads into our, my second point, all this was leading to the second point. We should come to communion with love in our heart for one another. We should come to communion with love in our heart for one another. It's fascinating to me that before and after Paul gave instructions about how to come to communion, he confronts this problem of divisions and dissensions in the church. If you were here when I preached through 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul deals with this problem comprehensively in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And you can always go back and listen to those messages if you want to do that. Do that they're online, they're on our podcast and that sort of thing. But he, he deals with it comprehensively. However, Paul is still appalled. It's kind of a play on word. But anyway, appalled at their display of factionalism as they come together for communion. Just one chapter before this, he had wrote, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all participate of the one bread. And it seems like they, they, what they did was they, they passed around one loaf of bread, and each person would break off a piece as they observed communion. I know that's great for you germaphobes in here, but, but that's what they did. That one loaf of bread is a picture of the fact that they were one body together. However, the divisions in the church at Corinth, the divisions that they were experiencing, was this total contradiction of being one body in Christ. This is why Paul writes verses 18 and 19. This is why he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, honestly, verse 19, it's a little hard to understand. And, and I spent, I kid you not, Hours on this one verse. I mean, hours. Because <laughs> most commentators that I've read say that Paul is saying that God works good even out of a bad situation, which we all know to be true, right? We know that God works good out of bad situations. And so he permits these factions in the church to reveal who truly, who the truly spiritual, mature people in the church are. And so that's what most commentators say. Well, God allows factions so we, we can see who the truly mature and spiritual people of the church are. 
And that sounds, that sounds good, but I struggle because that doesn't seem to line up with verse 17. Now, I know I'm going to go against what most commentators say, but I, but I read many of them. I can't keep them all straight, but I did find some that line up with what I am about to say. So I'm not, I'm not off on that island all by myself. You see, Paul had this way of writing uh, in his writing. He would be sarcastic to prove a point. And I believe that's what we see in verse 19. I actually agree with how the New Living Translation puts it. This is what it says, which is a paraphrase if you're wondering. And if you want more questions about that, come ask me later. But this is what it says. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you have God's approval and will be recognized. Paul is telling them that when they actually come together, they're really not coming together at all. Because they're just divided. They're just this disorderly group of people that are a poor reflection on Christ and a poor reflection on themselves. And so, of course, there must be division among you because you think that your status is a reflection of God's special approval. And yet your behavior proves that you really don't have God's special approval on you. That's the point that Paul is driving home. You're snubbing your nose at those in your church who you believe are not as socially superior as you are by the world's standards. What is, what is worthy by the world's standards is proven unworthy of high regards and respect or esteem by God's standards. And it's, it, it is only a disgrace to the community and an insult to God. You think it's, Paul's saying, you think this is worthy of praise, but it's not worthy of praise. In fact, I'm going to tell you what, God has already judged you. And I believe that, that through sarcasm, Paul's trying to get the socially elite to recognize that they brought divine judgment on themselves. And so I would translate it like this. Well, of course you have your divisions among you so that your favorite leaders can bask in the spotlight. <clears throat> this is why Paul told them in verse 17 that it would be better for them not to even come together in the first place as a church than to come together with this friction and faction. And then in verses 20 through 22, Paul confronts their selfishness and gluttony as they stuff their faces and get drunk at the common meal before they even take communion. They were ignoring the slaves and other people who were part of their church. And so when he says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, he's telling them that they are invalidating the whole reason for remembering the self-sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Their selfishness, their drunkenness, their gluttonous behavior, shame the poor. And Paul is shocked at their behavior. He's in He's like, I cannot believe this is going on. And the whole point that Paul is making is that we come together for communion with our hearts filled with love for one another. Communion is a spiritual activity that you do not practice by yourself. It's practiced together. That's the whole point in the word, right? Communion. We can pray and read our Bible alone. 
There's a lot of spiritual life that we can do alone that's hidden. But communion is celebrated with other people. So in order for us to do it right, we have to deal with the damaged relationships the best way that we can. So we come together eating and drinking that symbolizes the body and the blood of Christ should demonstrate the nature of our self-sacrificing Savior who gave himself to die on our behalf. And I know it's hard and I know it takes, takes time to resolve conflicts and some never get resolved. But let us remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. To be the best of our ability, we should, to, 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 to the best of our ability, we should seek to be right with others before we come to communion. This is what Jesus taught us, right? In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, when Jesus says, So if you're offering the gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave it there. And go and first be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. You see, all through the Bible we have this kind of language. That we deal with the issue. That we seek forgiveness. That we confess our sin. That we go to our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and seek for relationships to be restored. We don't just ignore it. We don't just pretend like it's not there. And we for sure don't go tell everybody else about it. That's all through Scripture. The, the predominance of Scripture never tells us one time. There's never one, one command to tell you to go to someone else and tell them your problem with someone else. And we say, well, that's just a concern. No, it's not a concern. It's gossip. And not one time do we have a command that we're to gossip. But we're told real sternly how to deal with gossipers. And so, so often we come to communion together as one body with problems with other people that we are taking communion with that we've never dealt with. And God wants us to be reconciled with one another. When you come to worship. And failure to do so makes us religious hypocrites. Kind of like my opening story, right? Janet and Linda. What do they need to do? They need to take time to meet privately and ask for each other's forgiveness. However, the other person was wronged. They, then each one needs to grant forgiveness to their sister in Christ. And then they can participate in communion with a clear conscience. Have you ever had a fight with your spouse during the week? Right? You don't get along and maybe you get frustrated with one another. And, and perhaps you say something. I know nobody's ever said something that they regret saying. Right? You've never done that to your spouse. But what do you do when Sunday night rolls around? What do you do if you had a fight with your spouse and Sunday night comes and you still haven't dealt with it? What if you're taking communion the next day? You ever been in that situation? Had a fight with your spouse, taking communion. Sometimes we have a fight on our way to church, right? And then we're like, oh crud, it's communion. Maybe your heart just starts to beat out of your chest. Oh, I gotta deal with this. 
What I'm saying is that we need to ask for forgiveness of one another and affirm our love for one another before we take communion on Sunday. What about parents who are angry with their children? Is it, it, it you know, do you deal with that? It's okay to say you're wrong. It's okay to say, you know what, I shouldn't have yelled at you yesterday. It's okay to say, will you forgive me? What I'm telling you is when we fail to do this, our kids watch us go to church and take communion and they think to themselves, what a phony. Their Christianity is worthless. You see, because communion is meant to be a display of the truth that we are one body in Christ. It's a sad indictment on the church for the number of pastor kids who have left the faith altogether because they've witnessed how the body of Christ treated their father and their family. Before we take communion, we have to clear up all relational conflicts to the best of our ability. Coming to communion often means that we should that means that we should take it often and that we should care for our relational issues often. Thirdly, come to communion remembering the Lord. Come to communion remembering the Lord. I don't know if you know this or not, but 1 Corinthians was written before Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, so we have this early, uh, in this passage, we have this earliest recorded words of Jesus and the earliest account of the first actual Lord's Supper. Now, to be fair, scholars have different views on whether Paul means that he received it from direct revelation from Christ or whether he received it from the Lord through the other apostles. Personally, I think it was from direct revelation of Christ. And the reason I believe this is Galatians, where Paul writes in Galatians 1, 11, and 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from my own, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that makes it sound like it's direct revelation to me. But there are four things I believe that we have to remember that are right here in this, in this text. The first thing I believe that we have to remember when we're coming to communion and remembering the Lord is remember who the Lord is. Remember who the Lord is. You're going to say, well, wait just a minute, preacher. I'm a Christian. I don't need to be told to remember who the Lord is. You think I'm going to forget about him? And here's the reality of the situation, right? We get so busy doing our things. We even get busy serving the Lord that it becomes very easy for us to forget the Lord and who the Lord is. If you come into my office and you look on top of my bookshelf, there's some older pictures there. You see the photographs of my family. If you walk into our home and you look on the fridge or you go down the hallway, you would see the same thing, all these pictures. You know what? I've never had one person ever look at my pictures and ask me, hey, um, do you have those pictures because you can't remember who your family is? Nobody's ever said that to me. Because why do we have pictures of our family and other people? To touch our heart, right? That's the whole point of it. On my phone, I have it set up so, so it shows me different pictures when I open it up. You see, when I take a time to look at those pictures, they can, they can be a reminder of the loved ones, sometimes from whom I'm separated. I can recall those good times. 
I have with them, and I can thank God for them, and I can pray for them, and I, I, and I can pray that God will protect them and that His grace will be on them. And I look forward to seeing them again and, and feeling their hugs and enjoying their company and hearing their words. You see, the value in the picture is an emotional value. The picture touches your heart. That's the way it's supposed to be with communion. Jesus left us a picture of himself for us to remember him. We should take time to pause and look at the picture when we do. It should remind us of his great love for us that was shown to us immensely on the cross. Our hearts should be filled with this desire to one day be with him and see him when he comes again. We should look inward at ourselves and ask, is there anything in my life that I need to deal with before I actually meet Jesus face to face? It, it, it should touch our hearts and make us say, thank you, God. Thank you for giving me Jesus Christ. Communion is a time for us to remember our Savior, but also we need to remember the Lord's sacrifice for you. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, that Jesus, who is the spotless lamb of God, would die for our sins. Our guilt was placed on him. That guilt-ridden deacon that I shared about in the opening story has to come to realize that he can come to this communion table where we celebrate the death of Jesus Christ and he places his guilt on Christ. And now by faith in Christ, he can live guilt-free. Now to be clear, the words from Jesus, this is my body, has Christians divided. I did take a sermon and talk about all the different views um, concerning communion when I preached through 1 Corinthians. I'm not going to do that here. I was going to do it, but I decided not to. Obviously, as Baptists, we believe that Jesus was speaking symbolically of the elements and are a picture of Jesus' blood and body which was shed for us. Is Jesus spiritually present with us when we celebrate communion? Yes, he, he is. I believe he is. But it's not in the same, in some sort of uh, mystical sense. He's present just the same during communion as he is present when we worship. As he's present right now when we hear his word being proclaimed. Partaking of communion does not automatically bestow grace on anyone unless we're partaking of communion in faith. And so when we come together for communion by faith, we remember Jesus' Suffering and his death on the cross for our sins, 1 Peter 2.24 tells us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. We must never forget that. Never forget the death of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you to be able to take communion. Next, we need to remember your forgiveness. The sacrifices that took place in the Old Testament, they could not take away sins permanently. But Jesus said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, This cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. These words, new covenant, is a reference to the Lord's promise where he promised, I will forgive their iniquities and their sin, and I will remember them no more. What a great assurance, church, that the Lord does not just forgive your sins. 
why He forgets our sins. He doesn't just forgive them, but He forgets them. Now, you're going to say, well, how is that possible? Because the Lord knows everything. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how it's possible. I don't think He forgets in the way that we forget, like, like, you know, you forget your keys, or you forget your phone, or you forget where you put stuff. I think what it means is he's not going to bring them up anymore for judgment against you. Have you ever had somebody that just keeps reminding you of, of something you said or did in your past? you ever had somebody do that to you? Like you, like you did this thing a year ago, two, sometimes ten years ago, and they just don't ever let you live it down. They, they always remind you, remember when you did this? Remember when you said this? The Lord doesn't do that. If you've never come to Christ and placed your faith and trust in Him, that's the greatest need of your life. If you've never done that, remember His forgiveness. Never forget that He died for you and that He reconciles you to, to God forever. Next, remember Jesus is coming back. Remember Jesus is coming back. Jesus said, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That Greek word here for proclaim is used elsewhere in the Bible for proclaiming the, the gospel. And when we take communion, it's this proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. If Jesus were not resurrected, then he could not come again. Stop and think about it. Each time that we come together for communion, potentially that could be the last time you take communion. This could be potentially... Don't want to blow your mind or anything, but this could be the last time you're in church together. Because we believe Jesus can come at any time, any moment. The trump could sound. The dead in Christ will rise, and those that are alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. Communion is a reminder for us to be ready for that day to come. But it doesn't stop there. Paul could have stopped right there and been done. Right? One last thing I want to share with you. And we'll wrap this up. Come to communion considering yourself. Come to communion considering yourself. Paul takes several verses here to call on us to consider ourselves. And as much as I'd like to go into a lot of detail, I don't have the time to do so. So quickly, what Paul was saying was that, the, that many of the Corinthians were suffering from sickness and even death because they were coming to communion in a relationally unloving manner, self-centered, and not what God had prescribed. In verse 32, he clarifies that this judgment that he's speaking of is not eternal condemnation, but it is instead divine discipline. And if they wanted to avoid this divine discipline, if we want to avoid discipline, then he gives us these prerequisites for coming to communion. Let a person examine himself. And then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then in verse 29, he speaks of judging the body rightly, which I think is a reference to the body and the blood of the Lord, meaning that we should not partake of, a, of communion in this flippant or irreverent way, but we should partake in a way that is worshipful and thankful. 
And when we take time to consider ourselves, it means that we should do this private mental inventory of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It means that we should ask ourselves some questions. And, and these are good questions that maybe we ask ourselves every single day. But especially at communion time, when we're sitting there contemplating our relationship with Jesus Christ. Am I genuinely trusting in Christ alone for my salvation? That's a good question to ask. Do I have sin in my heart where I'm at odds with someone else? That's a good question to ask. Are there any sins that I have in, that I have not confessed and turned from? That's a good question to ask. You see, communion is not for the sinless because none of us are sinless. It's for anyone that's dealing with sin on the heart level as they continue their walk with Christ. You know what's encouraging to me when I think about communion? It's that at that very first Lord's Supper, you know what the disciples were doing, right? They're having this argument about who's going to be the greatest. Well, I'm going to be the greatest. No. I'm going to be the No, you guys got it all wrong. I am the greatest, and I'm going to be the greatest. It tells us that. They're, they're fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. What's Jesus do? Tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times for this night's even over. Then just a short time later, he takes his disciples... And then takes a few of them and separates. Tells them to stay awake. Keep watch and pray with him in the garden. <coughs> what do they do? Fall asleep. Communion's not for the perfect sense. But it's for all of us who have struggles with our shortcomings. They're common to everyone. And that doesn't mean that we just shrug sit off like it's no big deal. My favorite thing is when we excuse our sin as a weakness. Try to make an excuse for our sinfulness. We try to pawn it off as something other than sin. Let's just call it for what it is. It's sin. This is why Paul asks that rhetorical question in Romans 6 where he says this, should we continue in sin so the grace will increase? What's he say? He says, by no means. How can we who have died to sin actually live in it? Communion is this frequent reminder that we need to actually deal with our sin on the heart level before we come to God. I want to conclude this message this morning by telling about a Scottish theologian I'd read about named John Duncan. One time as the communion was being held in the Church of Scotland, the element came to a 16-year-old girl. She suddenly turned her head aside and motioned for the elder to take the cup away. She could not drink it. Professor Duncan reached his arm over to the girl and he touched her shoulder and he said tenderly, take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. We're all sinners. 
Naturally, we believe communion is for saved sinners, but we're all just a bunch of sinners. It's who we are. Oh, let us not be satisfied. Just sit in our sin and do nothing about it. John Stott once forcefully said, If the cross is not central in our thinking, it is safe to say that our faith, whatever it be, is not the Christian faith, and our creed, whatever it be, is not the Apostles' Creed. Communion is a reminder for us to keep the cross of Christ central. And let me ask you this this morning. Is the cross central in your life? Perhaps you would say that you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior. Therefore, the cross of Christ is not central in your life, and communion would be meaningless. You can place your trust in Christ today by praying something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's Son and that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not magic. I go in that prayer every week because there could be people online or sitting in their pew wondering how it is that I can be saved. It's not a magic prayer. Christ is the one that saves you. If you call out to Him and you express your trust in Him to save you, if you said that prayer or something like it, I'd love to follow up with you. You can come forward. If you're online, you can text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488. You can even do that in your pew if you want to. And this morning, if you are a believer, is the cross central to you? Is your heart filled with love for others? Are you remembering the Lord? Are you considering yourself? Perhaps this morning there's sin that you need to deal with or something else you need to deal with. The altar is open for you. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you for this word. It speaks to us. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for all those times we're not willing to call sin, sin. You just call it something else. Try to pawn it off on a weakness. Try to say it's not sinful. Forgive us, Lord. And then, Lord, three times we gather, taking communion, proclaiming one body. while harboring sin in our heart towards a brother or sister in Christ. Forgive us. Forgive us for the words we've said. Forgive us for the thoughts. Forgive us for the intentions of our heart. Forgive us for coming together at times not unified, building our own kingdom instead of building yours. Forgive us.
Lord, I would pray that if you've spoken to someone this morning, that you give them no rest. Whether they're a believer or a non-believer. Oh God, I pray that the hound of heaven would pursue them and not let them go. Lord, that we would be completely surrendered to you. The cross of Christ would be central to our life and to our church. And we would proclaim the cross of Christ to a lost and dying world. That they would come to know Jesus as their Savior. If you've spoken to us this morning, I pray that we would respond. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we see you on the come this morning.